0: Oh, it's all the way over here, Carol. Come down this way, you guys. Good morning, everybody. Glad that you're here. You get to see this unique group of people up here who have just finished training in Stephen's ministry, and like a year of training, right? Pretty close. So I was talking with Carol and Phil just before the service, and especially if you're new here, this will be helpful to you. Carol's going to explain what they've done here in just a moment, but this has gone on for eight years now, and I just had it pop in my head while I was sitting there. How many people do you think have gone through Stephen's ministry? Well, oh, that's a tough one, <laughs> <laughs> Are you talking in terms of ministers? Yes. yes. Yeah, total, total trained. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say probably 46. Yeah, 46. 46 people? We'll go with 46. All right, 46. <laughs> All right, awesome. So this is a chance for you to hear about what they've learned and how they're going to serve you. Go ahead, Carol. Right. Good morning. By the way, Carol Tobias, if you haven't met Carol yet. my nose growing, yeah.
1: to have served in this capacity. So for those of you who are out there, I can't see you very well, but would you stand for just a moment so they'll know we have Ministers about. And then we're we're welcoming eight new Ministers who have just come through a class of 50 hours of training and they are up here to be congratulated also. Uh, they, they came to us with various backgrounds, and they all share a trust in the Lord to help people who are hurting, and we're very grateful for that.
0: Okay, well, I get to introduce the new ministers. I'm Phil Tobias, better known as Carol's husband. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so please welcome
1: our new ministers, John Sharp, Phil Kozojek, I blew that, didn't I? Glenn
0: <laughs> Perry, Jerry Phelan, Nancy Tidness, and Sharon Gillette, Ted Sinemi, and Rich Child. Welcome. Welcome. So we're going to take a minute and pray for them because their responsibility is to serve you, and they want to serve you well. They've gone through a lot of training to do that, and we're really excited about how God might use them in the next year. We're not sure how specifically, but He will use them. So I'm going to ask you to do this with me. Would you take a moment and stand, and let's pray together as a church for the work that these people are taking on. Father, we lift these individuals up to You, and we thank You, first of all, for the dedication of the leaders who have taken the time to train them, and we thank You for these individuals who have taken the time to say, we want to be used by You. So we ask, in turn, that You would allow fruit to be produced from all the efforts that they put forward and in ways that this congregation can't begin to imagine. We know that You will use them to reach into the lives of people who are struggling. So we ask, Father, that maybe even for ourselves it would be a strengthening to our lives personally. We lift them up before you and ask that you would give them uh, ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to serve you well and to advance the kingdom and to represent Jesus on earth. We pray for that in his matchless name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and have a seat. Thank you guys for being up here. About if you give them a hand one more time. I have uh, one more detail for you while they're taking their seat, and uh, Jeff asked me to let you know about the Discovery class. If you haven't taken that before, that's coming up this coming Saturday, and it's not too late to sign up for that. If you're new to New Hope, it is a a class that takes place on Saturday that the elders teach. I'll be part of that. And we talk about the history of New Hope, uh, the finances of New Hope, the Constitution, how we got to do what we do here, and it's a prerequisite to membership. So if you'd like to be a member of New Hope Church, the Discovery class is this coming Saturday. I think there's 25 people signed up already, but there's room for more if you'd like to do that. So check the website or check with Jeff after the service. He'll be out in the information area. We're going to step into Exodus chapter 16 this morning. I'm going to ask you to join me there if you would. And if you have your Bible with you, or you'll see the verses up on the screen, so you can follow along that way, or there's a Bible in front of you in the, in the chair racks in front of you, you can follow along. Specifically, uh, we're going to be looking at God's will for your life. I have a lot of young people who often ask me, I want to know God's will for my life. And I remember asking that when I was in my 20s, in Bible college, talking to my professors and saying, I really want to know God's will for my life. What you're going to see this morning is kind of a mix of justification and sanctification and how those two things come out in the midst of this passage. But know this for sure, if you're here this morning and you already follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to be reminded that God sees you as holy in this moment. I want you to say amen if you agree with that. He sees you as holy. Your conduct may not always be holy. and You might say, I'm anything but that. But because of Jesus, God sees you as holy, and I mean that in an eternal sense, meaning your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life because of what Jesus did for you. That is a fantastic reason to say amen. He caused you to be seen as holy by a holy God, therefore, you're justified. Jesus himself spoke to this in John chapter 6. He said it this way. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So Jesus there is talking about a true believer, understanding the word that He uses when He says believes, He's talking about both your confession and your conduct. Your confession and your conduct, we'll come back to that in just a few minutes. What Jesus is saying there is that if you're a believer, a legitimate believer, your eternity is settled. Even though we didn't deserve it, even though we certainly didn't earn it, but because of Jesus, we've been given life, and that is God's grace on us. But, there's always a but, isn't there? But, this is a big but, but the knowledge of that truth, it sometimes it can produce a mindset in us, and the mindset is this, yes, I got my ticket punched. I'm good to go, and we stop. We're really good at that plateau. My mindset is I've got my ticket to heaven, and I can can live that way, and we stop short, and we miss the sanctification process. God's will for you, while you're still drawing breath on this planet, is that we would behave wholly in our lifestyle. I said this morning is about God's will for you. Look at what God's will is, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Therefore what Scripture is telling us that God's working on us. He works on us to justify us, make us saved, bring us into eternal life, and then He continues to work on us because it's His will that we would be sanctified. Now you might be looking at yourself and saying, I don't feel so sanctified. How do I get there? Well, the short answer is obedience. Obedience to everything that God's called you to do. Obedience to God's standard of living. And it's a process. It's a process learning not to grumble. We talked about that last week. How many of you had to check yourself this week on grumbling? I did. I wanted to grumble so bad so many times. Sometimes I came in the door to my wife and I said, I can't preach it last weekend and then grumble to you, so I'm just going to shut up because I wanted to, but it's a process to learn not to grumble. It's a process to learn to be grateful. It's a process to learn to bridle our tongue. It's a process to learn self-control. That's sanctification, a process by which the Holy Spirit works on us like a giant filter on our life, filtering the contaminants and causing us to check ourselves, like a spiritual filter on your life to purify you. That's the actual word for sanctification, look with me on the screen, hagiosmos. This particular Greek word hagios means holy, hagiosmos is the, the process of purification, the process of sanctification. So, sanctification from God, the sanctification against lying, against grumbling, against gossiping, against anger. When we come into Exodus 16 this morning, as you examine this, we find that it's been exactly one month since Israel has left Egypt, and God has been slowly moving them towards Mount Sinai. We're going to see that next week. We get to see the the beginning of the stages of the Ten Commandments being handed down, God coming down in fire and power over the mountain and making the earth shake, but they're not there yet. They're leaving this region of this desert area known as Elim, and they're leaving it apparently in fairly large sections, and then they reassemble together as one complete group when they reach a new location called the Desert of Sin in the wilderness. It's not the word sin that we use in the English language. It's just a region, this way it's described in that tongue there. But go with me to verse 2 in Exodus chapter 16. It says, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And mind you, this is a different grumbling than what you saw last week. This is a new one. It says in verse 3, you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Chapter 15, last week we saw they're grumbling about water. Now we find them grumbling about food. So we discover that this group, in verse 3, if you read it a little more, I didn't put it on the screen, suddenly they've forgotten how cruel the slave masters were back in Egypt. And they begin grumbling about the reality that we had lots of food when we lived there. We could eat all day long. We don't have any food now. And everything seems dreamy to them looking back on the past. Just a speculation for you. I'm thinking that probably by this point, The food that they took with them when they left Egypt, they've exhausted that supply. Apparently, maybe it lasted them 30 days. But the food's gone now, and they're saying, we're in the wilderness, and we don't have anything to eat. What are we supposed to do in this situation? Now, last week, we saw that God provided for them with pure water. He took what was bitter, and He made it completely clean from this oasis, and now we find in verse 4, God's going to answer their grumbling again. Verse 4 says... Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go, out, shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my instructions." Sounds like sanctification, doesn't it? Whether or not they will walk in my instruction on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Here's what's striking to me, first of all, right off the bat. God is so gracious, they're grumbling and He's responding by meeting their needs. He answers their grumbling by saying, I'm going to bring bread from heaven for you. Now I'm sure that we would likely, most of us all agree, that there are things that obviously can be only of God, and we would say this is one of those because only God can bring something from no thing, and He's going to bring something from no thing here. You find throughout the Bible, He speaks, and for instance, in Genesis 1, where there was no land, land appears. Where there wasn't life, life appears. He's going to speak, and you're going to find the same thing here. We're told God speaks, and bread's going to appear where there was no bread. But this miraculous provision is part of a deeper test. It's going to allow Israel the opportunity to obey in faith, and maybe this is you saw this already in your notes if you picked them up when you came in this morning. If, if you're new to New Hope, the notes are always out in the atrium behind that pillar there. And if you're watching online right now, you can download those. But maybe you already saw this point in your notes: obedience in your life. Obedience is actually the proper expression of your faith. And, and faith allows you to be obedient. The two work hand in hand. Obedience is the expression of your faith, the proper expression. But faith allows you to be obedient. Ponder that as we move forward into this. You'll find that those two absolutely work hand in hand. Verse 6, So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for He hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? Verse 8, Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. Now, what has happened so far is God has explained to Moses and Aaron what he was going to do, and Moses and Aaron have explained in turn to the people what is going to happen. That's what you just read there. Now, from a human point of view, just a raw human point of view, we can understand their attitude. The attitude is absolutely understandable because they're in very difficult circumstances. This group of people, we estimate somewhere around two million, are moving very slowly as a group towards Mount Sinai, and they're in the wilderness, and they're wondering how in the world they're going to survive, and finding food is extremely difficult for them. But God says, this is all designed as a test. I'm actually testing them whether or not they're willing to trust me. Now, because you and I have the perspective of looking back over the last 3,500 years, we would yell out to them, you're going to be fine. It's all going to work out. But we have the perspective of history. So we would say, stop whining already. Why are you doing that? But they don't know that it's all going to be fine. You've been in wilderness circumstances in your life. You know what it's like to go through times when you're not sure it's all going to be fine. So how in the world can humans accurately determine whether or not the test they're going through is actually from God, or is it just a circumstance that you blundered your way into? How in the world do we know if we made a poor choice or if God has actually brought a test to us? Well, usually I boil it down to a very simple thing in my life. It's usually by looking at the situation and determining if it was under my control or not. Because if it was under my control, it's probably because I blundered into it. And there's many things that I have blundered into I would never blame God for. Say, God did this to me. No, it was just stupidity on Mark's part. I get that. But in the case of Israel in this story, they could easily say, well, God led us here. We looked up, and we saw the pillar of cloud, and we followed Him. He's the one that brought us to this situation. We're supposed to be here, and experience tells us that He's going to provide." Well, that would be a really mature response. They could respond that way, but they're anything but mature. They're in Sanctification 101. They aren't very far along in the process. But interestingly, as you read through the story, you understand that God knows that they have enough information to trust Him. Otherwise, He would not be testing them because God never tests us beyond what we're able. Right, church? He won't do that. So God knows they have enough information. Otherwise, He would not be testing them. But here's the deal. The newness of being without food in a new location. The pain of hunger in their bellies, the bleating of their animals in their ears who are just as hungry as they are, and the natural human tendency to be distrustful, it causes them to grumble again, exclamation point, over and over. So Israel's short-term memory is going to be fixed that very evening, verse 10. It came about, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. There's a huge emphasis in this on knowing that God is the one who's at work, God is the one who's allowing this trial. Verse 13, so it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat." So poultry for supper and pancakes for breakfast, I would love to have some of this magical bread from heaven. You can't get it today. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Quail in the Middle East are known as being migratory birds. You know, typically, we'll go to great lengths to fly south for the winter, much like our birds here in Michigan, and these particular quail will fly a great distance to the south in the cold months, and they'll make their way back to the north in the warm months. That's well-known to the people of the region, and so they get really, really tired flying over the ocean and over the Red Sea, moving from Africa and the southern parts of Saudi Arabia back up the Sinai Peninsula. And when they get to the Sinai Peninsula, they crash to rest. They stop. Now, that's kind of a natural explanation for part of what you're seeing going on here, but just hold that thought with me for a moment. Go with me forward to verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded, gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no access, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses, and some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul, and Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat, but when the sun grew hot, it would melt. So you've got this amazing, miraculous gift that has just come their way. Interesting, when Tolkien wrote the Lord of the Rings series, he was basing the elven bread on this component of the Bible looking at this magical stuff that appeared. So Moses says every family is to gather an omer, which is in the English world, we would call it two quarts, per person, two quarts per person. Now eventually this stuff is gonna become so abundant to them, it's gonna be like bananas on Gilligan's Island, it's coming out their ears. If you're Gen Z and you don't know what Gilligan's Island is, talk to somebody who's got gray hair around you, okay? (laughs) They're going to get sick and tired of it. My mom described for me that when she was a little girl growing up in Levering, Michigan, which is just 12 miles south of the bridge, grew up in a very poor family, and they didn't have a lot. And so my grandmother fed the kids oatmeal a lot. And my mom said she got so sick and tired of oatmeal. When she was cooking it for us as kids, when she's an adult, she's a mom, she would never eat any. So I finally said, Mom, why don't you eat oatmeal? And she said, I hate it. And I said, why? And she said, I ate it twice a day, every day, until I was 15 years old, constantly. So they grew up in a poor home, and mom said she would actually look for knot holes in the wood in the wall, and she would shove her oatmeal in there. (laughs) Yeah. Really great for keeping the mice away, right? Yeah. So she hated it that much. That's what's going to become to these individuals. But right now, this is new. This is a novelty. Now, many people have attempted a natural explanation for this. They're, they're looking for the natural origin of this incomprehensible material. So some have gone so far to say, well, what this actually is, it's the nighttime secretion of a bug. There's, there's bugs in the Middle East and they lay something like, like bees do honey. And so they're leaving this secretion around. and." And then other people think, well, no, this is more like a lichen material that grows on the rocks. It's about the size of a pea, and it's so very lightweight, it blows away in the wind, and maybe they're getting nutrition from that. All the non-biblical explanations have a major problem. None of them can account for the melting or the decay in 24 hours when they keep it for more than just a day. And this manna, it's going to be food for 40 years not just for three or four to six weeks in August and July, and the nutrition factor of this stuff is off the charts. The caloric intake that, it, that feeds and sustains these two million people obviously is something supernatural about this. Uh, it's remarkable to me that people can believe that God is capable of parting the sea but that He can't produce bread. Or, or for that matter, that He can save your eternal soul from hell, but He can't turn water into wine? Come on, your God is too small if that's the way you're thinking. Our God is a great God. He controls all of creation. If He wants to make bread, He can make bread. Here's my position. Let it be what it is. Scripture calls it God's bread from heaven, miraculously created for a very special purpose. The Bible actually indicates that it tasted like wafers of honey, as you're going to see in this description. And the consistency of it, it was such that it could be ground into powder, or it could be made into cakes, or it could be cooked in a pot like rice. Look with me at Numbers chapter 11, verse 7. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bedellum. The people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar and boil it in the pot and make cakes with it, and its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Now, in spite of Aaron and Moses saying to the people with a very clear warning, God's testing you. He wants to see whether or not you're going to obey Him. So you better not store any of this until the next morning. Verse 20 tells us, they did not listen. But God's test is intended to daily remind these individuals that we do not exist by the sustenance of bread, even though we think we do. We exist by something much, much greater. Everything that proceeds from the mouth of God And at the end of his life, Moses reminded people, he's 120 years old, and he said exactly that to them. Look with me on the screen at Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that He might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. He humbled you, check this, and He let you be hungry. And fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? That he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, that man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord, everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord, even our daily bread as a result of God speaking and speaking things into existence and commanding with his word so that we would understand we live in daily dependence upon him. Well in Israel's case God personally prefers not just any old food. He's not giving them peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. He's giving them something far greater than that, something far better. He says in Exodus 16:4, "I will rain for you bread from heaven." How amazing is that? Would you not love to get your hands on that? But what God's doing here is he's teaching a much larger concept that carries over even to our day and this time that we live. He is our ultimate provider. Everything that we have comes from Him. And the one who gives us not what we think we need, but what we really need. And He's saying, it comes from heaven. It comes directly from me. Now, on the whole, it is human nature to store up things. We do that, we tend to hoard, we tend to save things at a later date. We tend to take as much as we can, especially in the face of impending discomfort. All I have to say to you is COVID toilet paper. And you know what I'm talking about, right? A little too soon for some of you? Hey, sorry, think Y2K and storing up flour and rice. Again, if you're Gen Z, I'll save you a trip to Wikipedia. It's, it's this time where the clocks flipped over at the end of the century, 1999 became 2000. People were going to convince the world came to an end. It didn't. Here we are, 23 years later, and yet people were convinced, so they started storing things up. We have that human tendency within us, we tend to store. So we have this innate nature to store things away like squirrels hiding acorns. Not sure what the winter is going to bring. And Scripture commends us to do that. Look with me on the screen. Proverbs 21, precious treasure and oil are in the wise man's dwelling. Well, it's in his pantry because he's smart and he put things away. That's really intelligent. But check the test that God's putting these individuals through. The test that God's putting them through requires huge faith for agricultural people. These are agricultural people. Farmers know that their livestock don't produce food 365 days a year. They know their crops don't produce food 365 days a year. Farmers store up for the future. They have to. They understand that it will be exhausted. So this is a huge test for them. Because what they're being asked to do is restrain a natural tendency to gather as much as is available in anticipation of a time when there won't be something to gather. But God's teaching them to trust, to trust that He is their source, which has never been part of their life pattern. Check this. They're 30 days into the wanderings. They grew up in a pagan society with polytheistic gods. They don't know what it is to follow God. They're new to this walk. They're new to the sanctification process, and God's putting them through a test. Now, in the case of manna, the people are being specifically told that what God provides for them is going to take care of them and specifically, they're only supposed to gather exactly what they need for one single day at a time, except on one day a week. And God's going to allow this stuff to be preserved, not for 24 hours, but for 48 hours. Watch, verse 22. Now, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Shabbat to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field, six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day the Sabbath... There will be none. So check this, Bible students, already prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath rest has been put in place before they get to Mount Sinai. The word actually here is Shabbat, and notice what Shabbat means, not just to repose or to desist from activity, but it actually means also at the same time to celebrate. What are they supposed to be celebrating? God's provision for them. Many people are discovered are surprised to find that Shabbat didn't originate at Sinai. Obviously it was rooted in the first week of creation, but here it surfaces in verse 23 and God commands it, and then it's carried over to Mount Sinai. So on the sixth day, this day of preparation, they're to gather twice as much as they possibly can hold, twice the daily amount, And on that day, they can store it up for future use. It's going to be miraculously preserved by God. Now, this is all very interesting. And for history students who are like looking back and saying, okay, there's some really good insights, but then we want to know how does this relate to our world? Specifically, how does this reveal Jesus? Well, because God built us and He knows us intimately, and to demonstrate that we must rely fully on His capacity into the human nature of self-sufficiency to want to hoard up, to want to gather as much as we possibly can, to want to work and earn it. God interjects this Sabbath rest prohibition. These individuals will not be able to work. And He instructs them, you have to fully rely on Me, which in this case means no gathering of manna on one particular day. Now I've said earlier that this is all about sanctification. Sanctification means learning to obey God's Word. Watch where this goes, verse 27, it came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather… wait, did I read that right? It, yeah. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people did exactly what they weren't supposed to do. Some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep My commandments and My instructions? See the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore He gives you bread for two days on the sixth day." Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. See what's going on here, church. Read between the lines with me. To reinforce that it's God's will that they would be sanctified and that God actually delights in obedience. He intervenes to make obedience possible. He actually eases them very gently into this newfound responsibility of trusting God. Therefore, what he's doing here is he causes this manna and quail to amazingly appear, and then on one particular day, he preserves it, and all they have to do is lounge around in their PJs and do nothing and just celebrate God. Like, how easy is that? Just trust me. I'm gonna meet your needs. You just lounge, take it easy, chill. You don't have to work at all. And then chapter 16 comes to this screeching halt with this comment. Verse 31, the house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. Verse 35, the sons of Israel ate the manna for 40 years. That's why I said it's like bananas on Gilligan's Island. This is such an amazing display of God's grace. And it's just the beginning. He consistently meets their needs. Soon you're going to learn that their shoes never wear out. They don't need new leather. I need new shoes about every six months, it seems like. They're going to go 40 years and their leather doesn't wear out. Even though they constantly repeat the same behavior. Verse 1, chapter 17. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Here it comes, verse 2, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, I really love these people. Now, what am I going to do with these people? He's crying out to the Lord, what shall I do with them? Last week, we saw that the testing of God involves withholding trust, requiring that the God who's already proven himself capable would do it again. You got to do it again, God, because the circumstances are completely different. We need to know that you're sufficient because we've got new circumstances now. And Moses understands that's where they're coming from. He's been with them long enough to know, I think I've had it with them. I don't know that I can do this anymore. And frankly, as you read the story, you would say, because that's part of human nature, I've come to the conclusion that God doesn't wipe us all out and start all over again. is just amazing. But He did that once. He did that with Noah. And yet, we returned right back again to the exact same kind of behavior, sinful behavior, which tells me, New Hope Church that we're no different than ancient Israel. Our sin nature to rebel and not to obey is so strong that our God allows wilderness experiences so that we will understand what it is to submit to his instruction. So to this point, you've seen God's purpose is that they would be in the wilderness. And they're in the wilderness to discover and know this God, and they think they know him, but they don't really know him. What the trials and testings in our life do for us is they reveal our heart. They really show who we are, but in an even greater way, they reveal the depth of who God really is. Now, I mentioned earlier that all these things, the major component of these details in chapter 16 and chapter 17, they're they're written for a larger application. Here comes a larger application. God allows a larger concept to develop here and it's carrying over to our day and we need to be reminded of this. For one, He is our ultimate provider. He is the one who gives not what we expect and not what we think we need, but what we really need, and what we really need comes from heaven. In Exodus, when God satisfies the humans with the bread of heaven, He's not only referring to manna. Look at me on the screen again. I will reign from heaven, bread from heaven, for you. So this bread of heaven is going to bring life to those who are in the wilderness. The ultimate bread of heaven is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus spoke to this specifically. Verse 47, John chapter 6. This is where we started, church. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Followed by verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Stop right there for just a moment. Hold that verse on the screen. Jesus has just said they got all the nutritional impact they needed. Yep, it tasted like honey. It tasted sweet. It exactly met their need and it was was there day after day after day and they got all the caloric intake that they needed to sustain their body. But they still died. They got food for their body and they died. Verse 50, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Amen and amen and amen. See, the, the belief that Jesus is using her? it's referring to both confession and conduct. The one who confesses Christ has to conduct themselves as though they belong to Christ sanctification process causes us to look more and more like this Christ that we say we confess. Lots of people say they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I told you on Easter weekend, 73% of the American population believe that Jesus physically, bodily rose from the dead. Just ask yourself this question, does 73% of the population of the United States live as though they believe Jesus Christ is their Lord? You can answer that very quickly. So, the believing here is talking about confession and conduct, and in the big picture, Jesus is talking about the cross. He's talking about His death on the old rugged cross, and we understand that to consume something, it has to die, right? You eat meat, it had to die first. You eat green beans, you plucked it off the stalk. That vegetable has to begin the death process in order for you to take it in. Food can't merely sit on your dinner plate. It does no good to you. It might be wonderful to have a stack of steaks in your freezer, but if you never consume it, it doesn't do you any good. Now, Jesus is using this as an analogy. I'm not by any means, any stretch of the imagination suggesting that when you take communion and and we eat the bread, that we're actually eating Jesus' body, and that's what's giving us eternal life, not suggesting that at all. Jesus is using this as an analogy. He's saying, I'm offering my body on the cross. I'm going to die for you, and my body is the bread of heaven, and that is the price of your redemption. I'm going to die on the cross for your sins, and you and I have to take Him in. We have to accept Him and take Him into our life because that sacrificial death is for our salvation. Why? Because a permanent reconciliation with God has to be made possible. So we find in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. Because Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And because of Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there's hell in your destiny. There's no forgiveness. Without Him dying, you get nothing. And God accepted His death as the full payment for your sin because Romans 3 says, it was impossible for the grave to hold Him because God accepted what He paid. And so therefore, He burst forth from the grave so that we get this in our head. Just as you take food and drink into your body and it becomes part of you, so you must receive Him into your life because He gives life and that life comes from heaven. It's Him. He is the source. In the case of the manna analogy, I know this is really simple, but stay with me on this. It's easy to tune this out. Think of how profound it is, though. In the manna analogy, we're specifically told, trust God. What he provides in this bread of heaven, it will take care of you for all eternity. So live like it. Lord God, we thank you for the truth that's come from your word this morning. It's directly from you. And your Holy Spirit causes your word to come alive. It's all about you. So we give the glory and the honor and the praise back to you. And we thank you this morning. I thank You for the very large percentage of individuals who know this, they get it. God, empower us to walk as though we really are convicted by it, that we would walk as those who are being sanctified. Father, thank You for our salvation in Jesus Christ. For those who may not yet know You, God, I ask that You would surround them with the power of Your Holy Spirit, comfort them and cause them to realize they can have forgiveness of their sin. We pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. If we haven't met yet, I'll be down here in the front after the service, so I'd love to connect with you. Have a great week, New Hope.